This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 148. Welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. Today I have on the show with me Jacob Paulson and a very special guest, Andrew Branca. How are you guys doing? Great. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, uh, Andrew. Uh, we're really looking forward to uh, uh, chatting with you for, for about the next 45 minutes or so. But before we get too far along here, today's episode is brought to you by Andrew Branca's The Law of Self-Defense. ConcealedCarry.com and the Concealed Carry Podcast has joined forces with Andrew Branca to bring to you the best legal education related to the law of self-defense. Trust me, if you ever have to draw or use your gun in self-defense, you are going to want to know how to minimize your vulnerability to prosecution and conviction by helping your defense team build the most compelling narrative of innocence. Andrew has the resources you need through live in-person courses, online training, his best-selling book, The Law of Self-Defense, and now newly released video DVDs. Check it all out at www.concealedcarry.com forward slash L-O-S-D. Andrew is, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> it might seem a, uh, a little promotional or whatever, but I, I think you're just uh, you know one of the, the greatest out there as far as helping people understand the law of self-defense. Uh, you really get it. So uh, I think we've got a lot we can learn from today in talking with you, a lot of value for our listeners of this podcast. Um, Andrew, if you wouldn't mind just taking a moment and giving folks, you know, if, if they've not heard of you before, uh, maybe you could just tell us in a nutshell a little bit about a little bit about your background, um, you know, and, and and who you are. Uh, sure. Well, of course, I'm an attorney. Uh, I specialize in use of force law, meaning self-defense, defense of others, defense of property, and I have since 1998. So that's my only area of specialization. It's a very odd legal practice. Uh, most criminal defense attorneys have a rather broader practice. They'll be doing DWIs or armed robberies or whatever the case might be. Uh, all I do is use of force law. Uh, and the nature of my practice is uh, even more unusual in that I don't take direct clients. So all my clients are actually other attorneys around the country who are the lead counsel on their cases, and I consult to those attorneys on their cases. So my clients are other attorneys. Uh, in addition to the legal work, per se, we also do a great deal of, uh, of writing and education, books, classes, blogging. Uh, we do about 80 classes a year on self-defense law, state-specific, all over the country. Um, and of course, now we're on the third edition of our book, The Law of Self-Defense, uh, available on Amazon, our website. But people can learn everything they need to know from us uh, from our website at lawofselfdefense.com. Awesome. That's a great summary. And I would certainly recommend to listeners of the podcast uh, to, to, to read your book, The Law of Self-Defense, or attend, uh, well, and or attend uh, any of your classes. Uh, you travel the country quite extensively uh, teaching these uh uh, you know, one day level one uh, law of self defense courses, and then you do a level two course as well. Uh, and they just look uh, fantastic. In fact, we're going to host you for a class coming up here in uh, just a couple of months, November 11th and 12th, here in Lakewood, Colorado. And certainly want to get that plug in. You know, anyone that would like to attend, uh, please, please do consider uh, checking into it. And you can see the the schedule 
uh, of classes on Andrew's website, lawofselfdefense.com. And Jacob, I'm going to rely on you to provide the link for, I think we got a special link specific to uh, the class that we're hosting here coming up. But we'll get yeah, back. I'll, I'll put that link in the show notes, but you can also find it on colorado.concealedcarry.com. Oh, great. Awesome. So we've got that uh, shared on our website as well. So, um, Andrew, um, one thing that obviously, I mean, this is at the core of law. I mean, for a lot of CCWers, a lot of concealed carriers out there, uh, it, it comes up all the time. It's certainly on people's minds, and that is stand your ground law. And as hosts of, of this, you know, concealed carry podcast, and also through our website concealedcarry.com, I mean, we get tons of questions and tons of comments that relate to stand your ground and other self defense that are just. I mean, we hear things all the time that are just crazy. And so if if we could, I'd like to, you know, kind of do a little bit of an overview of stand your ground law, uh, what it is, what it isn't, maybe what some of, you know, some very common misconceptions are that you see that people have about it. Um, so I'm going to kind of hand it off to you and let you take, take it away from there. Sure. So stand your ground is actually a very simple concept, but unfortunately the phrase stand your ground has become... Uh, used to describe very different, very distinct, entirely separate legal concepts. And when you use the same phrase to describe very different things, it can only confuse communication and confuse analysis about the application and the scope of Stand Your Ground. Uh, Stand Your Ground is best understood by first understanding that in any claim of self-defense, there are up to five elements that have to be present. If any one of those elements is missing, whatever your use of force was, it was not self-defense. And there's only five, just like there's only four rules of gun safety. So this is not rocket science. Anybody can learn this. Uh, but the five elements are innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. Innocence meaning you can't have been the aggressor in the fight. Obviously, an aggressor cannot claim self-defense. Imminence meaning the threat you're facing has to be about to happen right now. It can't be some past threat that's over or some distant future threat. Proportionality has to do with the notion that you can only use as much force as necessary to neutralize the threat and no more than that. Avoidance is where stand your ground comes in. So I'll skip it for a moment, mention the fifth element, which is reasonableness. Everything you do, your perceptions, your decisions, your actions have to be those of a reasonable and prudent person. So where stand your ground comes into play is in the, that fourth element, that element of avoidance. And avoidance has to do with whether or not there's an, a pre-existing legal duty for you to retreat if safely possible before you can use force in self-defense. Now, most states do not apply this element of avoidance. Only 13 states apply the element of avoidance, impose this legal duty to retreat. 37 states do not. And those 37 states that do not are properly called stand your ground states. Because what the law says in those states is we're not going to impose a legal duty to retreat. You're entitled to stand your ground when you're attacked. That's all that stand your ground does is it takes away what might otherwise have been a legal duty to retreat. It removes that legal duty from the equation. Now, stand your ground is not some weird parallel way of claiming self-defense. You don't choose between claiming self-defense and claiming stand your ground. All stand your ground says is all the other elements of the claim still exist and still have to be present. You still have to be the innocent party. 
You still have to be facing an imminent threat. You still have to use proportional force and no more. And your conduct still has to be reasonable. And if you meet those four conditions in a stand-your-ground state, that's it. That's all you need. It was self-defense. We're not going to impose the legal burden of retreat before you can act in self-defense. So that's literally all stand-your-ground does is remove one of those five elements of a self-defense claim. Unfortunately, when Florida adopted stand-your-ground in 2005, they also adopted some other provisions in their self-defense law, notably self-defense immunity, And the phrase stand your ground has come to be used to mean both those things, removing a legal duty to retreat and qualifying for immunity from prosecution or from civil suit. But those are two completely different legal concepts. One of them, removing the duty to retreat, actually redefines what qualifies as stand your ground. Now you only need to meet four elements, not five elements. The other, self-defense immunity, has nothing to do with the definition of self-defense. It simply says if your conduct meets the definition, however it's defined, then you can qualify for immunity from prosecution and conviction. Properly, those two concepts should be uh, stand your ground on the one hand when we're talking about having no duty to retreat, and it should be called self-defense immunity when we're talking about self-defense immunity. When we use the same phrase, stand your ground, to mean both, we only cause confusion. Yeah, I would like, uh, Andrew, for for us to talk a little bit more about the concept of duty to retreat in states where there is no stand-your-ground law or premise, where there is a duty. So those 13 states, which I realize is a minority, but can you talk a little bit more about, uh, in those states, what is that duty to retreat? When does a person have a duty to retreat, or how much do they have to retreat? Uh, I've I've never lived in any of those 13 states. Um, It's not something I'm intimately familiar with, and I think having some clarity on that for people who live in that, that, you know, in those states would be, would be helpful. Sure. Well, in the, would you like the list? This is a national podcast. Oh, I would love the list. Yes, please. So the 13 states are Arkansas, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Nebraska, New Jersey, New York, North Dakota, Ohio, and Rhode Island. So most of those are blue states, what we would think of as blue states, but not all of them. Uh, North Dakota wouldn't think of as a blue state. Uh, Ohio may be purplish, but large areas of Ohio would certainly are not blue. Um, But most of the others are primarily what we would think of as blue states. Of course, there are blue states that are not on that list. California, for example, is a stand-your-ground state. Uh, But in those 13 states, essentially what the law says is before you can use force in self-defense, if you instead have a safe avenue of retreat available to you, you are required to take it, to take advantage of that safe avenue of retreat. Now, it has to be a safe avenue of retreat. You're not required to increase your jeopardy, um, and you're not required to abandon someone that you might have an obligation to protect. So you might be with an elderly parent or a small child. Perhaps you could safely retreat, but they can't safely retreat. You're not required to leave that person behind, even in the duty to retreat states. Um, And on its face, it sounds like a reasonable policy. Why use force against someone else if you have the option of retreating? And by the way, I tell all my students that while I'm a huge advocate of stand your ground law because I think it's good public policy, They should all pretend that it doesn't exist. They should all pretend they live in a duty to retreat state. Because if, in fact, you have a safe avenue of retreat, getting engaged in a hands-on fight is absolutely insane. Uh, People need to keep in mind, there's no way to reduce the physical risk of a fight to zero. I don't care how many black belts you have. I don't care if you're a master class shooter in some competitive sport. I don't care how many handgun 
tactical training courses you've taken. It could just not be your day. And you could lose that fight. So the moment you go hands-on with someone, you've immediately incurred a greater than zero risk of dying that day. Uh, by the way, you've also incurred a greater than zero risk of getting convicted and sentenced to jail for much of the rest of your life. If you can avoid those risks by taking advantage of a totally safe avenue of retreat and you don't do that, you're not the brightest cookie in the drawer. <laughs> now, having said that, the reason I support stand your ground laws is unfortunately when a duty to retreat exists, it's often abused by prosecutors and the criminal justice system uh, because they lose sense of the the very important context that it's quite one matter for someone who's facing an imminent threat of death to try to evaluate whether or not they have a totally safe avenue of retreat. And for other people, with perfect 20-20 hindsight, in the safety of a prosecutor's office or the safety of a courtroom, to be making the same assessment. Um, so I don't believe, I, I, I believe that if someone meets the other four elements, they're the innocent party, they're facing an imminent threat, they didn't use excessive force, and they otherwise acted reasonably, that they should not go to jail for the rest of their lives simply because someone with perfect twenty twenty hindsight thought that perhaps they had a safe avenue of retreat. Um, mm. That's about it, I think. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's very helpful. Well, there was, I, I'm frankly a little bit surprised at a couple of states you listed in that list of 13 states. Uh, like you said, North Dakota, Nebraska, Arkansas. Arkansas. Yeah. It's like, wow, I, I, I had no idea. Um, so, yeah, I hope, hopefully this is helpful for any of our listeners living in any, any of those states uh, and, and or Ohio uh, to uh, to understand that if they didn't understand that already. Um. If we were to put that in the context of, say, like a, uh, uh, and, and maybe we'll come back to this a little bit more a little bit later in, in the episode today, but if we were put, to put this in the context of of a uh, case, um, I don't know, dare we use George Zimmerman <laughs> as an example um, of a, you know, it, now he was in a stand your ground state, uh, but if he was in Nebraska or Arkansas or any of these other, you know, uh, non-stand your ground states, would that case have been different? No, there, there, there was literally none of the prominent self-defense cases we see in the news are ever stand your ground cases. If if we're using stand your ground properly, meaning the person had a safe avenue of retreat and didn't take advantage of it, uh, when otherwise they would have had a duty. Uh, in the case of George Zimmerman, uh, you know, the duty to retreat, let's pretend Florida was a duty to retreat state. Um, uh even if it was, it wouldn't have mattered on the facts of that case because the duty to retreat doesn't isn't triggered until you're facing that imminent threat. In other words, you're allowed to talk to someone. You're not required to retreat until things are about to become uh, to the point where you, you would otherwise be obliged to use physical force and self-defense. There's no duty to retreat yet. In the case of George Zimmerman, the first use of physical force was Trayvon Martin punching him and knocking him to the ground and mounting him. So immediately, there was no possibility of retreat. And we know this because we have on the 911 calls from his neighbors uh, that were all recorded, of course, so we can listen to those, uh, 45 seconds of Zimmerman screaming for help while he was getting his head beat into a sidewalk, desperately trying to escape. Uh, if anyone's ever been in a position where they've been mounted by someone who knows how to fight, it's very difficult to get out of that position. And Zimmerman himself had no particular fighting skills, whatever, so it really was impossible for him. If escape is impossible, then there's no legal duty to escape, even in a duty-to-retreat state. So even if Florida had never adopted Stand Your Ground, retreat would not have been an issue in that case. Hmm. Yeah. 
I know we're going to get kind of controversial here, but I think where some people would look at the Zimmerman case, uh, they would suggest, well, you know, George Zimmerman should have never followed Trayvon Martin to begin with. Uh, sure, I hear that a lot. Uh, <laughs> the, the thing is, though, that merely following someone, especially when you're a member of your neighborhood's community watch program and you've been instructed by the police to observe and report, and the dispatcher has asked you for information that you can only provide if you follow the suspect. Uh, there's nothing, there's no malice there, and there's nothing unlawful about that conduct, and it's not a threat of physical violence. Uh, so none of that would create the circumstances in which a duty to retreat would have been triggered. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's a great clarification to have. Uh, so... <clears throat> Speaking of Florida and stand your ground law, uh, recently there's an article published uh, on Reuters uh, talking about stand your ground, and uh, well, they reference in this article um, a research letter uh, written by a Dr. David Humphreys um, that's titled "Association Between Enactment of a Stand Your Ground Self Defense Law and Unlawful Homicides in Florida," and it seems to be that the premise here is that. Unlawful homicides in Florida have increased as a result of stand your ground law being the law of the land. Uh, I've seen some, you know, interesting uh, uh, posts on social media from you addressing this, and curious if we could get your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, this research letter by Dr. Humphreys is uh, complete and utter garbage. I don't know if it's garbage because he's intellectually incapable of conducting good science or if he simply has a malicious bias against stand your ground and self-defense. Somebody would have to ask him, I suppose, to make that determination. But whatever the cause, uh, his research letter is garbage. Uh, And by the way, it's garbage that they're charging $30 to access and it's a one-page document. So would that suggest to me that they really don't want to encourage people to actually read the letter itself? Uh, But Dr. Humphreys is writing his research letter in part to a previous critique I made of a paper he published last year, where he said Florida stand your ground law increased homicides. Uh, And I wrote in response, well, so what? Not all homicides are created equally. There's justifiable homicides and there's non-justifiable homicides. Uh, a, a, um, a rapist who kills his vic- rape victim has committed an unjustifiable homicide. If that rape victim turns out to be armed and instead kills the rapist, that's a justifiable homicide and a social good. Therefore, there's no comparison between the two. One is a social bad, one is a social two. You can't generically describe the group. Well, he's responded in this research letter by saying, okay, fair enough. I should have distinguished between good murders and bad murders. Uh, and now I've done that, and let me describe what I did in this research paper. It's only a page long. Uh, he says he did a time-lapse regression analysis of a bunch of new data that he came across. Uh, but when you look at the footnotes for his data, uh, it turns out that they're really uh, just gibberish. Uh, for example, he references the Federal Bureau of Investigation Uniform Crime Reporting Handbook from 2004, which sounds very authoritative. And of course, the uniform crime reports are the FBI's kind of premier data collection set. What's curious about this footnote is, first of all, he quotes it from 2004, but he's doing a study that's supposed to be comparing data from pre-2005 to post-2005. Well, if the data you're looking at ends in 2004, I don't see how you do that. In any case, he's not actually citing the uniform crime reports. His, His footnote is to the uniform crime reporting handbook. 
This is the handbook that's provided to police departments to explain to them how they're supposed to collect the data. This is not the data. So he can't say he did a regression analysis of data that he got from the handbook when the handbook, in fact, doesn't contain any data. His next footnote is to the Violence Policy Center. Well, the Violence Policy Center is a well-known gun control organization that politically advocates for increased limitations on gun ownership by law-abiding people. That's their privilege. It's a free country. We have the First Amendment. They're entitled to do that. But Dr. Humphreys uh, mysteriously fails to disclose this bias in his research. Uh, I would suggest that approaches uh, scientific malfeasance uh, when you're writing a scientific paper. Of course, right. it gets even worse than that, uh, because even if he had been looking at the uniform crime reports, uh, they are about as authoritative a data set as we get, but they have their defects. And one of its enormous defects is in looking at justifiable homicide. Uh, they simply they get it wrong from a definitional basis. And they get it wrong because of the nature of how a homicide is determined to be justifiable. So the uniform crime reports are literally um, an aggregation of the initial crime reports that are made by officers when they get to a crime scene or immediately following getting to a crime scene. So that patrolman looks at the scene in front of him, makes an initial determination of whether or not he thinks something's justifiable or not justifiable, uh, writes it in his report. But it's in the very nature of justifiable homicides that if there's been a killing and there's someone there claiming self-defense, meaning they're conceding that they committed the killing, there's probable cause for an arrest. So the, the departments almost always make an arrest. That's the initial report. And then it's not until weeks or months later that a determination is made by a prosecutor or a court or a grand jury about whether or not that homicide was in fact justifiable. So just imagine any self-defense case you've ever seen uh, like the George Zimmerman case, where he was acquitted. Well, we know that as a legal matter, his homicide of Trayvon Martin was justifiable. That's what the acquittal means. But his entry in the uniform crime reports is that it was an unjustifiable shooting because that's the determination that was made on the spot at the time. Mm. So the, the data is extremely defective. And now either Dr. Humphreys knows this and he's choosing to use it anyway, or he doesn't know it, which suggests scientific incompetence. Right. That's, that's mm -hmm. such an important distinction right there, what you just explained a moment ago about how the, the crime data in the UCR from the FBI, that is collected by law enforcement officers. And so, as you said, that's going to call many justifiable, justifiable homicides as unjustifiable homicides, or just it's just going to call them as homicides, right? No patrol officer on the scene of a shooting is going to be, want the responsibility for making the final determination of whether or not this was self-defense or not. That's above his pay grade. And of course, especially these days, there's a lot of political dynamics involved among many shootings. Uh, what they'll do is they'll play it safe, they'll make the arrest, they'll hand the investigative report on to the prosecutors, and then it's someone else's problem. Right. So that's 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 the distinction right there is that report the reporting data that the FBI has is not coming from the courts or for or from prosecutors but coming from the law enforcement officers on the front lines and so that that's why I think if it's been a little while I mean a year or so since I probably last looked at the UCR or any of those reports uh, but it just classifies homicides as a category is that right. And so right. that based on a very initial preliminary assessment by a patrol yeah. officer 
whose every institutional bias is going to be to take as little political risk as possible and pass the buck on to his superiors. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that just, like you said, I mean, that debunks a lot of what, uh, uh, Dr. Humphreys is, you know, pulling from his data is not really data or it's not relevant data to what, you know, to the point that he's trying to make. Um, and so uh, I appreciate you kind of, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> going through that with us and, and explaining that in case, uh, I, I think that just really pulls out <clears throat> a lot of clarification for uh, folks like us that support uh, the Second Amendment, that support concealed carry, that support the right to self-defense, and you know just debunks this whole media narrative and uh, what what folks out there, the anti-gunners, would like us to believe about stand your ground and about self-defense. <clears throat> I mean, these Jacob- so, the so-called researchers use a lot of scientific terminology. They make things sound very fancy. They talk about doing a uninterrupted time series regression analysis of their data, and there's lots of percentages and statistical terms of art. Uh, But we've all heard the phrase GIGO, right? Garbage in, garbage out. And if the data you're putting into the model is garbage, and this data is, you're not going to get anything but garbage out at the end. Yeah. Now, we talked about stand your ground. I think it's only fair to to address... um, castle doctrine which is kind of the flip side of the coin as far as like stand your ground typically uh we think of events that take place outside of a home uh what about self-defense with within a home what, what are some maybe misconceptions that we see from ccwers uh about that uh or anything that you could address about uh castle doctrine so we have the same problem with castle doctrine as we do with stand your ground and that the phrase is used to mean very different things. Um, what castle doctrine really means and the only way this phrase should be used, and I say that knowing that 99% of the people who use it are, are using it wrong and will continue to do so, but the only proper meaning of castle doctrine is that if you would have had a duty to retreat outside your home, you're relieved of that duty inside your home. Now, what this means as a practical matter is because 37 states are, are stand-your-ground states, there's only 13 states that impose a duty to retreat even when you're outside your home. So it's really only in those 13 states that you need the castle doctrine to be relieved of that duty when you're inside your home. So the proper understanding of castle doctrine is essentially it's like a mini stand-your-ground that applies in your house. Unfortunately, how castle doctrine is often used is to mean special privileges or considerations that might come into play when you're using force in the context of your dwelling or your place of business or your occupied vehicle, depending on the state. And I refer to all of these as highly defensible property to differentiate them from personal property. What a lot of states do is they provide special legal provisions for the use of force in the context of those special properties. Often what they'll do is they'll create a legal presumption, uh, that you were in reasonable fear of death or grave bodily harm if, for example, someone's forcibly entering your home. Uh, That's not really castle doctrine. That's defensive dwelling law because it doesn't involve the issue of retreat. It it involves whether even after retreat, you're still going to be required to meet those other elements of the self-defense claim. In this case, reasonableness. What the law is doing is it's basically giving you the reasonableness element if someone's forcibly entering your home. Um, 
when we use the phrase castle doctrine to mean both those those things, being relieved of a duty to retreat in your home on the one hand, and having special privileges with respect to other elements of the self-defense claim on the other hand, again, we only cause confusion. Mm. Yeah, wow. that's a really important distinction. And I, I see that all the time. And I, I'm probably guilty of having done that uh, as an instructor at one time or another, because, you know, that. It, we we love to have this sense that it's my castle, and if you come in here, then darn it, you know whatever. Um, and so we 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 love to latch onto terminology, Andrew. And and unfortunately, because the rest of us aren't attorneys, and we don't have any liability of saying whatever the heck we want. Some of these some of these things just kind of you know, roll down the hill, so to speak, and they gain momentum and they embody uh, a sentiment instead of an actual legal doctrine. I mean, that, that's right. And and the difficulty is, and of course. I, 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 this is particularly poignant to me because I do teach in all 50 states, and I can tell you that castle doctrine, as properly defined as I defined it as not having a duty to retreat in your home, exists in all 50 states, and it means essentially the same thing. Defensive dwelling law varies in all 50 states. Uh, Colorado has its, its uh, uh, make-my-day law, a very aggressive uh, defensive dwelling statute. Other states don't have that. They have their own versions that provide special privileges for using force and self-defense. And to use the phrase castle doctrine to put all those different approaches in one bucket uh, can only cause confusion for people. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Love it. That's one of the best uh, summaries, by the way, I've ever heard about castle doctrine uh, and provides a lot of clarification uh, to to people. Um, I know, Jacob, you got some questions, but since Andrew brought it up, I, I just got to ask – and we, we kind of broke down stand your ground uh, castle doctrine. So I think what you were suggesting, Andrew, is that many people will lump castle doctrine into make my day and or vice versa. And so can you explain for us briefly what make my day actually is or is not? And I know, like, like you said, it varies a lot from state to state, uh, but perhaps we could use Colorado as an example. Well, again, it, what essentially make my day or other defensive dwelling statutes. I, I don't want to get too deep into the 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 the, uh, the weeds of Colorado because I know you have a national audience and it would be different for everybody. Uh, but especially, essentially, what all these states do is they say, all right, outside of your home, you would have had to have met X number of conditions for your use of force to qualify as self defense. We're going to excuse some of those conditions. Um, and they excuse them in a variety of ways, normally by creating a legal presumption. So, of course, so, as we talked about, a couple of the elements that have to be present for a claim of self-defense is the threat you're facing has to be an imminent threat about to happen right now. And your use of force has to be proportional. So you can only use deadly force to defend against the deadly force attack. And your perceptions of all this has to be reasonable. Well, what a lot of states do, and effectively this is what Colorado's Make My Day law does, it says, well, if these certain facts exist, for example, someone's entering your home and there's a reasonable possibility they may use any force, not necessarily deadly force, but any degree of force against someone within that dwelling, it's presumed that you have a reasonable fear of an imminent threat of death or grave bodily harm. So that the law is handing you most of the elements that you need in order to be justified in your use of force against that person. Well, there you go. Yeah, that, that's a great clarification. And I, I love how you talk about the use of defense. Now, now here's one that we'll spin off of that along, along the same topic. And this is one of those like Jacob's soapbox issues. So Andrew, I'd love to hear your take on it. And that is this common perception 
that is that the the car or vehicle is an extension of the home. And I think in a lot of conversations, people use that phrase to imply uh, or suggest that in my vehicle, I can defend it as though I were in my home or that I could defend it under the same criteria or rules as I could in my home. And that's a very uh, far-reaching, I believe, maybe even myth. And I'd love to hear your take on that. Well, in some states, that's in fact true. Uh, So when I talk about highly defensible property, that always includes your home. Highly defensible property, meaning the kind of property that gets these special privileges. Uh, But after your home, it varies a lot from state to state. Uh, Many states will include also your workplace, Uh, but sometimes only if you're the owner, not if you're merely an employee. So people have to be careful about that. Uh, Some states will include your vehicle, but only if it's an occupied vehicle, you're actually in it. Your car parked at the street with nobody in it is simply personal property. You don't get those special privileges. Some states say, well, You'll get the special privileges if, if you're in your car or the vehicle of a, and then they define a list of special relationships, uh, like your, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, but not your aunt or uncle and not your cousin. And those are really treacherous because no one can remember what all the categories are at any particular time. So they don't really know if they're covered or not unless they happen to be in their own vehicle. Uh, So what constitutes highly defensible property where you get those special privileges varies enormously from state to state. So that's why the classes we teach are state-specific classes. Uh, But there are, in fact, a few states in which if you're in your vehicle, uh, it's treated for defense purposes exactly like the highly defensible property that is your home. Hmm. Not every state, not even most states. Yeah, yeah, that, that's perfect, Daniel. That really helps because I think that's that's one of those things that perpetuates itself very quickly. Um, that may or may not be a myth, depending on the state. Is is I think the kind of the main takeaway there. Here's here's another thought or, or, or question I, I might have. And this comes up all the time because obviously we operate the website concealcarry.com. We get tons of people who comment on articles and I, I love the conversation, I love the discussion, love the community of our readers. But I often wonder, you know, when I'm looking at some of the things people will write on our site, I think, man, am I ever going to get a court subpoena in the mail asking me to send, you know, the comment from, you know, John Doe uh, from from our website uh, to to some court proceedings, you know? So I'm wondering, I guess, you know, comments on websites, you know, discussion boards, Facebook, bumper stickers on the back of someone's car, you know, are these kinds of things, things that can hurt someone in a defensive case? Uh, well, absolutely. Uh, of course, it depends on the nature of what we're talking about. So I, I don't worry about things like having an NRA sticker on your car, for example. That's uh, To me, that's totally innocuous. What I worry about things, uh, what I worry about are things that go to a person's state of mind. How do they mm. think? How do they view the world? Uh, bumper stickers like, you know, keep honking, I'm reloading, or, you know, only carry $20 worth of ammo on board or, or things of that kind of thing. Um, even things like these terrorist uh, hunting permits that some people put on their cars. Uh, you know, that goes to state of mind. And heaven forbid you end up having to use deadly force to defend yourself against someone who's Muslim. Uh, that would certainly be used to suggest that you have uh, a personal malice towards that group. Uh, and that could, that could go a long way towards providing the prosecutor with that compelling narrative of guilt that he needs to sell to the jury. The same applies with things that people might put on their guns, uh, the, those Punisher backplates on Glocks or wait for flash engraved on the, the crown of the muzzle. Uh, you know, all of that suggests a propensity to use force under circumstances where it might not be legally warranted or under circumstances that you personally think are justified independent of what the law might allow. 
so I'm very much not a favor of any of those things. Also, people have to realize that everything they type on the internet must be presumed to be there forever. There's no such thing as erasing stuff off the internet. And I've had people come to me and I say, well, you know, you're very inflammatory on your on your blog. Are you sure you want to be writing that kind of stuff? And they're like, well, if I ever get in trouble, uh, I'll just delete the blog. Uh, oh, my God. I, I can't imagine anything that looks more guilty than that. I mean, it suggests that even you think that that communication was bad, was wrongful, um, now that you've decided to basically um, destroy evidence that the prosecutor would be seeking in the case. Uh, so I think people need to be prudent about what they say. Now, I think what can help people be prudent is if they actually know, know what's allowed. Unfortunately, uh, we live in a world where it's not so much that people don't have a lot of knowledge about self-defense law. The problem is they have a lot of knowledge that's wrong. And they, they've learned from anecdotes or stories or blog pages on the internet that unfortunately have no connection to what the law actually is. And when people believe they know the law, but their belief is mistaken, well, they often talk about the law in a mistaken way and conduct themselves in ways that are contrary to what the law actually is. And there's no excuse for that in the eyes of the law. Ignorance of the law is never an excuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's sobering. And, and I, <laughs> I hope people hear that because, man, I see things, you know, sometimes that I legitimately worry about some of, some of our, you know, things like, uh, yeah, I'm glad he's dead, you know, I would have shot him dead, 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 you know, and things like that. And I just think, whoa, uh, you know, I, my first concern is, you know, the ethical issues, of course, but, but then it, it always kind of comes back to me, man, I hope I never get subpoenaed for that one. It could happen. And, you know, people need to keep in mind that what, what the law allows us to do to defend ourselves is not actually to kill people. That's not what the law says. The law says we can use as much force as necessary to neutralize that threat against us. That may be deadly force, and it may have a high likelihood of killing that person. But whether or not the person actually dies is irrelevant to our self-defense claim. All that's required for our self-defense claim is that's the amount of force that was required to neutralize the threat against us. Once that threat has been neutralized, whether or not the person dies is inconsequential to our claim of self-defense. Of course, it could affect the particular criminal charge we're facing, uh, murder as opposed to aggravated battery, for example. But their death or or survival has nothing to do with the elements of the self-defense claim that we will have to raise to justify that degree of force that we used. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's uh, this is probably one of the most interesting questions we've uh, ever, uh, I think, answered, actually truly answered on this podcast uh, it's a question that we've received many times, and I don't know, Jacob or I have always known exactly how to answer that uh, as far as, you know, this whole question of uh, statements made on social, uh, things we put on our guns. Uh, so uh, I, I just hope those, those listening to this episode today are really taking that to heart. Uh, I've personally never been really one to put a lot of, bl- I'll call it bling, <laughs> on my guns uh it I, you know a gun is just a tool to me and you know i put it in my hand and i pull the trigger and it does what i need it to do at the time i need to need to do it i've not you know it's just been recently i've ever even done a cerakote job on a gun but uh when you brought up this you know putting a, a punisher you know emblem or something on the gun uh or some statement and you've engraved something on there um that uh that's really transformed my own personal thought and opinion on that. I'm definitely never doing that. Just think about who the Punisher is, right? He's a character that uses force against quote-unquote bad guys 
outside the permitted boundaries of the law. So yeah. do you think you're that guy? Are you role-playing that guy? Is that why you used force? Not because you had legal justification, but because you thought you had some kind of uh, paralegal authority to use force against this person? I mean, th these are doors you just don't want to open up to a prosecutor. Uh, you want to look like the most innocent person that prosecutor has ever seen. Uh, you don't want to do anything that could provide them, even with rhetorical points, that could be used to damage you. And let's face it, does the Punisher plate make the gun run better? Does it make you shoot better? Does it give you any advantage in the physical fight? No. So even if the chance that it would cause you legal problems is small, why incur even that small risk when you're not getting any benefit out of it? Um, <clears throat> it's a, and remember, that small increase in risk, the outcome could be the rest of your life in prison. So the stakes are pretty high. Now, there are a lot of modifications I think people can make to a gun that, that are fine, and there are some that are make me nervous. Uh, the ones that make me nervous ha have to do with how the gun fires, and what I really mean by that is the trigger and any safeties on the gun. Um, in terms of safeties, I've known guys who shoot competitively, who uh, shoot a 1911. Every once in a while, they bring the gun up, the trigger doesn't work because they don't have the grip safety. It's depressed. So what do they do? They tape the grip safety or they pin it or something like that, which on a game gun whatever. I don't think it's necessary. I think it's better if they learn proper technique. But certainly on a gun you're carrying for personal protection, if you have to use that gun, you will never convince a jury that you knew more about what that gun required in terms of a functional safety than the engineers who designed that gun. Uh, that'll never happen. Uh, in terms of a trigger, I don't have any problem with people doing things like smoothing a trigger out so it, it feels better or has a cleaner break. Uh, but I do get worried when people make big adjustments to the weight of a trigger. So they take a five and a half pound trigger and they drop some kind of aftermarket trigger group into it. And now it's a three and a half pound trigger. Um, that's a problem on a number of levels. One is that, um, first of all, they're going to measure the trigger weight. So the forensics guys are going to know this does not have a normal Glock trigger in it. Uh, it's a much lighter trigger than Glock put in that gun. Uh, now, unfortunately, what this opens up for is the prosecutor might try to argue that, well, sure, the defendant claims that he deliberately shot that person in self-defense, but we have reason to believe it was not an intentional shooting. It was a negligent shooting, bare tri hair trigger in the gun. And if he can successfully argue negligence to the jury, you lose self-defense as a legal defense because self-defense is only a legal defense to a deliberate act. It's not a legal defense to an unintentional act. So they put by the trigger, that light a trigger in the gun, you've opened the door to losing self-defense as a legal defense entirely. And by the way, if you put a three and a half pound trigger in a gun, as opposed to half, is it in half? Is it in fact more likely that you might have an accidental discharge with a trigger that much lighter? Uh, I suggest, yeah, that's a definite possibility, especially on a gun like a Glock that doesn't have any manipulable safeties on it. All that ever needs to happen is for that trigger to be depressed and that gun will discharge. So... Are you aware of any specific uh, cases where these sorts of things have, have come into play? They've been brought up in the, in the courtroom. Uh, I get asked all the time, and the, the, the simple truth is it doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter. So let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, these arguments, um, when lawyers talk about cases, when we research cases and we're learning the law from the case law, the court decisions, what we're talking about is appellate court decisions, uh, the court of appeals and the sort of state, court of a state. Those are the decisions that are, decisions that are captured uh, by the criminal justice system in a way that they're subject to research. 
And there's a reason for that. because It's because those are the court decisions that have precedence, that control other courts. What happens at the trial level is not captured in any way that can be researched. Of course, in the courthouse, there's a box in the basement with transcripts for that particular trial, but that's not researchable by anybody. And the reason what happens at a trial is not captured is because nobody cares, because it's not controlling on any other court. It's not even controlling on that same judge in a different case. Um, So because it's not controlling, nobody bothers collecting the information. As a result, we literally have no idea what arguments are being made at the trial level unless we happen to personally be involved in the case or the unlikely event of some accurate reporting about what's going on. I can tell you that I've seen plenty of cases in which prosecutors make arguments about unbelievable things. In the George Zimmerman case, for example, one one of the arguments the prosecutor made to the jury Uh, Evidence of Zimmerman's supposed malice was that not only was George Zimmerman carrying a Kiltec 9mm, not a Keltec 9mm, a Kiltec 9mm pistol, he was carrying it with a round in the chamber in the ready-to-fire condition. (laughs) Well, of course he was. That's how we all carry a defensive gun. Every bailiff in that courtroom had a round in the chamber. Uh, So it's it's a ridiculous argument from the prosecutor's part. for anybody that knows anything about guns. Um, nevertheless, he was using it against George Zimmerman. So the question, is, the question isn't whether or not a, a prosecutor can use this or that against you in court. He, he can say just about anything he wants. The question is, is it likely to damage you? And if a prosecutor is willing to suggest malice from the fact that you have a round chambered in your gun, is there any doubt that he would suggest malice if you got a trigger that's half the trigger weight from the factory or suggest malice because you have a punisher plate on your gun. I mean, all of those may be equally irrelevant from a realistic perspective, but they are used by prosecutors. Now, you ask about a case. Say I found a case that a prosecutor argued, well, he put a three and a half pound drop in trigger unit in his Glock and that suggests negligence and blah, blah, blah. Uh, for that case, that trial case to be relevant to you, it would have to be a trial involving you. Because if it's a case from Wyoming, it has no relevance in Colorado. Sure. If it's a case in one judicial district in Colorado, it doesn't have any relevance in the next judicial district. If it's a case that happened in that courtroom with that judge the week before, it has no relevance to your case because it's not controlling on your case. So what we need to recognize is not whether or not this specific argument has been made before, but will the argument be allowed and could it potentially hurt you? And the answer is yes. Wow. Hmm, some good clarity there on, on the, the way the legal system works. Because sometimes more important than what the law says is how it works, right? And, and so so that, that clarification is really important, Andrew, that you know, ultimately what's researchable or potentially refer to a bull, you know, in, in a case are things that have taken place in appellate courts and Supreme Courts and not just, you know, any any jury trial. And to your point, uh, and I think this this is the thing that's sticking with me even more so, is that anything can be used. The prosecutor basically can say whatever he wants or she wants. And 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 so, you know, how much ammunition do you want to give them? Absolutely. And, uh, and they, you know, prosecutors are in it to win. They are professionally graded on their win-loss record. And most prosecutors' offices have conviction rates in excess of 90%. At the federal level, it's in excess of 95% convictions when they bring someone to trial. Now, that's not just because they're good lawyers. It's also because 
guess what? They get to pick the cases they bring to trial. Um, just imagine if your favorite sports team could pick its opponents every season. It would have a 95% win rate too. Um, well, prosecutors get to do that. And when they've chosen your case, they are in it to win. And they will use everything at their disposal, especially things you give them that are helpful to their narrative of guilt uh, that they can possibly bring in front of the jury. Yeah. Here's an interesting question, Andrew, and I know that we're kind of barking up the same tree here. So to some degree, you're going to have the same answer. But I am curious about um, potential implications that you may or may not be aware of or, or, you know, or not of a person having received lots of training. You know, so if I if I've taken lots of classes or I, I have, you know, any degree of, of formal training with the firearm, uh, are there any potential implications there? Yeah, so it's a great question. I get asked all the time, especially by martial artists, but also people who take a lot of uh, gun training. Uh, someone will say, hey, I'm a, I'm a third degree black belt in, in this, that, or the other thing. Uh, or I'm a, I'm a grandmaster shooter, or uh, I've taken a lot of classes at, uh, I don't know, Sig Arms Academy or something like that. Uh, can that be used against me in court? Uh, and from a lawyer's perspective, what that really means is, um, might I be held to a different standard than someone who doesn't have that skill set or doesn't have that training. Uh, the first of all, yes, the prosecutor can absolutely bring it up uh, if it's at all relevant to the case. So you just you you must assume all the training you've had, any classes you've taken, any particular skills or qualifications you may have, is all going to be in front of the, the prosecutor, and he's free to raise just about any of it in that courtroom in front of the jury. Um, there's more great examples of this kind of thing from the Zimmerman trial. Uh, so the, the prosecutors made a big deal about the fact that George Zimmerman was a member of an MMA gym. Uh, and the argument, of course, was supposed to be, well, sure, he was getting beat up, but he had expert fighting skills. He was an MMA fighter. He could have defended himself without having to go to the gun. So they actually brought in the owner, the trainer at the MMA gym to talk about George Zimmerman's fighting skills. And uh, on cross-examination, because the, uh, the state called him as a witness, and then on cross-examination, the defense asked him, they said, when George Zimmerman first came to you, what would you say his fighting ability was on a scale of 1 to 10? And the gym instructor goes, uh, about a 1. And they said, and how long was George with you? Oh, 10 weeks or 15 weeks or whatever it was. And what was his fighting skill at the end of that period? And the gym owner goes, a one and a half, <laughs> Because... He just, he couldn't fight uh, and it wasn't enough time to teach him how to fight. So he didn't actually have that skill set. Nevertheless, the prosecutor called in that gym owner to use his purported fighting skill, which he didn't actually possess, against him in court. So the answer is, if you have some exceptional fighting skill or training, are, can the prosecutor use that in court to suggest to the jury you should be held to a different standard, a higher standard than someone who doesn't have that skill or training? The answer is yes, he can. But frankly, it's hard to argue against that position. If you actually possess those higher levels of skill, I think it's appropriate that you be held to the standard of someone who has that higher level of skill. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it, mm. it, I've also heard, and you know, talk about hearing things and anecdotes and stories, right? I've also heard that potentially that training could be useful uh, to combat charges of recklessness or negligence, and that might be outside the scope of our conversation today. But I think that the the main takeaway, and Andrew, tell me if you're wrong, is that more training is still always better. Good training is better. Ah, there you go. <laughs> um, it, it, as you say, that that training can be used to argue against a, a, a claim of negligence. Uh, but only if it's good training, because how you would argue 
Uh, essentially, the argument you're making is, look, I was trained in the proper way to do these things. That's how I did them. Therefore, I acted properly. To prove that in court, what you would be doing is bringing in an expert witness, either ideally the guy who actually trained you or some other expert in that particular field, to testify that this is how things are properly done. If you've gotten bad training from someone, uh, either you're not going to be able to find an expert witness willing to say that bad training was how it should be done, or you're going to have to bring in your bad instructor and watch him get destroyed on cross-examination. Uh, so neither of those would be good. So I always urge people, when you get training, get it from people who actually know what they're talking about and who will be presentable, if necessary, to be your expert. Yeah, great summary. What would you say, uh, Andrew, about um, – imagine we just had an incident. And obviously, law enforcement would be called to the scene. Um, could you walk us through the ideal – uh, scenario, like the, the ideal steps to take, uh, assuming, and I don't know whether you want to think of it, and I don't even know if it matters if, if you're at home or if you're out on the street, but I just fired shots, okay? So from the moment that the, that the last shot's fired, my threat is down. Don't know if he's dead or alive, doesn't matter. All I know is he stopped being a threat. Walk us through the next steps, and what's the ideal, as far as strengthening uh, our position, as far as protecting ourselves legally and and if we have to develop a uh, self-defense you know position how do we go about doing that in the best way I think there is an optimal approach to take to this but I've become uh, increasingly cautious over the years about how realistic that optimal approach may be for many people uh, one of the things we started doing in our in our live classes just in the last year is uh, at the end of the class itself we then have an optional simulator that people can run through a self-defense simulator um, and they have to face a video threat and then they have to solve the problem uh, using or not using an IR pistol and then they have to engage in a legal debrief with the rest of the class they have to tell us what they saw what they did and why they did it, what their legal rationale was based on what they learned in the course of the class that day. And what I found is the amount of stress that students experience going through the simulator is unbelievable. They can't remember what they saw. They can't remember what they did. And it's very difficult for them to explain what they did in a legally sensible way. And this is in a simulator. I mean, there's, there is no threat. There is no actual danger to them. Uh, so what I worry about is that I present what I think are the, is the optimal approach, but under the stress of the aftermath of a use of force event, people won't be able to restrain themselves to that optimal approach because the optimal approach is a, just a few very specific things. Uh, I don't want you saying more than that. Uh, there, it's always an option to say less than that, even to say nothing. Um, and many people advocate the say-nothing approach. Uh, so my concern is uh, if people know they can limit themselves to these very specific things, I think they leave value on the table by saying nothing. On the other hand, if they can't limit themselves to those things, I think the, the, the danger they incur by talking too much is enormous. So it's this optimal approach is not for everybody. Now, I don't know everybody, right? People know themselves better than I know them. They know how they tend to respond to stress and so forth. So I can't tell people what to do or not to do. I just want to make sure people understand that what I'm, when I talk about these specific things that can be helpful, it's not intended to be a mandate or you must do this or you've lost everything. Uh, it is just that, an optimal approach being suggested for their consideration. Uh, the main things I suggest is uh, most of 
what you might say are things you're going to have to say anyway. Uh, things like your name. Uh, if you're calling 911, of course the call is being recorded, you have to give them your location. I mean, the only reason to call 911 is to have resources sent someplace, right? So uh, you have to give them your location. Um, I think there's no harm in telling them right up front that I was attacked and I had to defend myself. It's very good to get self-defense in the record right away. I read plenty of appellate court decisions where the, the appellate courts, and now we're talking years after the events, years after the trial actually happened, the appellate courts are still mentioning that, sure, the defendant claimed self-defense at trial, but he didn't say a word about it at the scene. They pay attention to that kind of thing. So I think it's a real risk that devalues your later claim of self-defense if you don't mention anything about that when the police first show up. And by the way, you're going to have to claim self-defense anyway, right? This, this is not a secret. If you're going to be justifying your use of force against another person as self-defense, eventually you're going to have to say you acted in self-defense. Uh, I think where the, perhaps the more controversial suggestions are not when you're talking with 911 because they're not physically on the scene, but when you're dealing with the responding officers who come as a result of the 911 call, uh, they are physically on the scene. And what I worry about there is with the say nothing approach uh, is that, you know, say you're attacked by somebody with a knife uh, and you end up drawing your pistol, you shoot that person, they get knocked down, you call 911, the police show up, but their knife went sliding under a truck. Are you not going to tell the police officers that that guy's knife went under that truck? Are you going to say nothing to those officers? Because if that knife is not recovered, if it's not in evidence, it doesn't exist for legal purposes. It's speculative. It's imaginary. And that is your justification for shooting that person. I would suggest you really need that knife recovered into evidence and to let it be lost because you heard some dude on the internet say he should never say anything to the police, I think is, is not the smartest approach. And the same applies to witnesses. Uh, when you were attacked, you might need to, uh, there might have been one or two witnesses around who saw what actually happened. Uh, but once there's six patrol cars there, there might be 50 or 60 witnesses who were coming around to see what happened. The cops are never going to find the actual witnesses that were there at the beginning unless you point them out. So that's what I advocate. Make sure you identify for the officers exculpatory evidence and exculpatory witnesses because if they're not recovered, they don't exist for purposes of your defense. And good guy cases of self-defense don't tend to get into trouble when there's because there's too much evidence in the case. Good guy claims of self-defense tend to get into trouble when there's too little evidence in the case and our claim of self-defense begins to look speculative or imaginary. Yeah, but good. if your practical options wow. are uh, say nothing or blather away endlessly, uh, you're probably better off saying nothing. Uh, however, if you've thought about these issues enough, you've given it deep consideration, uh, and you feel that your your nature is of the sort that you can keep at least that level of cool, even if you've just shot and killed somebody, I think there's a lot to be said for that optimal approach. Yeah, that makes sense. Um yeah, and that's a. I really appreciate your kind of practicality of well, this would be ideal, but you know, given given your options, you need to make the best decision. Here's an interesting thought, Andrew, and I, I I'm getting this question. I'm deriving this question from something you said in the live broadcast we did uh, a week or two ago with you with our Guardian Nation members, and 
I think that there's a tendency, uh, there's kind of an attitude in the industry often of, you know, you don't need to know the law, you don't need to understand the statutes in your state, you, you just need to go out and like make good decisions and let the, let your attorney deal with that stuff. And I would love to hear your, your response to that kind of attitude. Well, I appreciate the confidence. <clears throat> let the attorney solve all the problems. Um, <laughs> here, here's the problem with that approach. Um, as an attorney... Uh, when a client comes through my door, uh, I don't have a time machine that lets me go back and fix his mistakes. I'm stuck with the evidence he gives me. And if he screwed up and his use of force was outside the bounds of the law, I don't get to change that. So he's in a very unenviable position and there's limits to what I can do to fix that. Um, It's the same with kind of these self-defense insurance programs. And I work with many of them and I don't have a problem with them. But sometimes I get the sense that uh, people sign up for these self-defense insurance programs and they're like, okay, I'm all set. If anything happens, that that, that company will take care of me. Uh, Well, you know, they're an insurance company. Uh, If you incur legal expenses, they may cover your legal expenses. Uh, If you get sued, they may cover the cost of the lawsuit. But guess what? They can't keep you out of jail if you did things that the prosecutor can convince the jury were unlawful, they don't give you a get out of jail free card. If you want to stay out of jail, I don't care what kind of insurance program you have. They can pay for your legal defense, but they can't give you facts that lead to an acquittal. Only your conduct in self-defense can generate the facts that will drive an acquittal. And what that inherently means is you have to know what the rules are when you're actually acting in self-defense and make sure your conduct stays within the rules. The good news is this isn't hard to do. There's only five elements of a self-defense claim. In 37 states, there's really only four. This is not rocket science, but those four rules need to be understood in their proper legal context in your state if they're going to be actionable for you when you're facing an actual threat. And if you can do that, and it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. My book is $9.99 in Kindle form. Uh, obviously, I think the live classes are a better way to get this information. But if all someone has is 10 bucks, for Pete's sakes, get the Kindle book. Educate yourself to at least that standard. And if you can do that and your, your use of force is, in fact, within the required elements, guess what? Very, very difficult target to prosecute. One of our phrases here at Defense is, defense is uh, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, know the law so you're hard to convict. That doesn't mean learn any kind of legal tricks, teach legal tricks, teach legal tricks. It means if you know the law, you can keep your conduct within the bounds of the law and you become a very difficult target for prosecution. And by the way, I would argue that it allows yourself to defend yourself and your family more decisively when you are facing a threat, because you know you're within the bounds of the law. You're not trying to figure that out while you're facing that guy with the knife. Yep. Yeah, great summary. And I think that's that's such a huge and important uh, mindset and attitude with which to, to approach this kind of education, right? We, we need to know, uh, A, so that we can you know, be decisive and, and not feel uh, kind of lost in ignorance. And we need, we need to know so that we can actually be legal so that we can, we, we can not put ourselves in a, in a position where we, we have to fight against illegal wrongdoings. It's uh, one of the most common things we see in our simulators is people hire a pistol, IR pistol, the video starts, they get a few seconds into it, the gun comes up. Oh, they don't shoot. The gun comes back down. Oh, the gun comes back up. They don't shoot. The gun comes back. They, they, they 
they're not able to act decisively. Um, they're not sure that bringing the gun up and breaking the shot is the right thing to do when we see the gun come up and down, up and down half a dozen times before either they get killed by the simulator or they decide to shoot the simulation. Um, it's, it's a very serious problem. Um, you know, I, one of the things we do throughout our live classes, especially as I urge people, like I have on this podcast with you folks, I urge people, don't get into fights you don't need to get into. The moment you go hands-on, you've incurred a greater than zero risk of dying and a greater than zero risk of going to jail for the rest of your life. Don't incur that risk unless the stakes are worth it. But if the stakes are worth it, have no other, have no other option then you need to be able to fight 150% decisively all out because your life and the life of your family is at stake. When the stakes are worth it, you got to be prepared to fight, but you have to know where that line is or you're hesitant and indecisive. And there's nothing worse than an indecisive defense. Yeah. Yep. Great advice. Uh, you know, probably start thinking about wrapping it up here, but uh, I think there's one question we've got to get out there. Uh, for folks, uh, it's something we've talked about a little bit, but definitely, I I think that you're the man to, to provide some some answers on this as well. Uh, let's suppose that uh, we've just had an active, you know, event. We've had we just had to use deadly force, um, kind of going along with that, you know, next steps thing. But uh, what would you say about selecting an attorney? How to go about that? What's the best you know way to find, or how do we find the best attorney to represent us? A lot of people think they 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 imagine that people have an attorney that's ready for them to call. That's generally not the case for most people. I mean, I, perhaps if you run a business, you have an attorney that you've retained for business purposes. But to my knowledge, nobody, not even most most professional criminals, actually keep a criminal defense attorney on retainer. Uh, and I have people offer me retainers all the time, and I won't take them. And the, the reason is, if I take your money, if I take a retainer from you now, when are you going to need those legal services from me? Tomorrow? Because if it's tomorrow, I have a problem with you, because that means you pre-planned it. Uh, but a year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, I'm not going to take money from you today for legal services. Statistically, I'll probably never need to provide you. Uh, so what that means basically is most of us go through life without any pre-prepared attorney there for us, uh, and we're not going to be seeking an attorney until something's actually happened and we're facing legal liability and we're in immediate need of an attorney. Uh, now, some people belong to one of these self-defense insurance organizations. Uh, if you do, all of them have a list of attorneys uh, that they'll they'll pick from to refer you to somebody uh, if you call them. Uh, in my experience, these lists tend to be uh, not consistently high value. Uh, there's been very a very low threshold for what's required for a lawyer to get on the list. So I'm, I'm not sure how good the list is. There are a couple of these groups that are beginning to do a better job of vetting the attorneys they recommend. So that's a good thing. That's a positive step moving forward. Uh, but what I generally tell people is, the best thing you can do in terms of picking an attorney is to do what my students are doing as I'm talking to them, which is learning the law of self-defense, learning enough of the law so that when, you, when you're talking to an attorney, when you're basically interviewing an attorney to represent you, you have enough of a foundation of knowledge to know what questions to ask and to have some idea of what kind of answers you should get back. And that way you can make an informed decision about whether this is the attorney for you. Remember, you're going to be living with this guy. If you've killed someone and you're being tried, you're going to be living with this attorney for a year, year and a half, maybe longer. 
Uh, so this is somebody you really need to have a lot of confidence in. This is a long-term relationship. Now, I would distinguish between that guy or gal uh, and whatever attorney you may initially use to go to your arraignment and arrange for your bail and that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff you don't need a legal genius for. Any criminal defense attorney can do that, and you're not stuck with that guy. Um, so in my opinion, you can use just about anybody to go to your arraignment, get your bail set, and then once you're out on bail, you can interview as many criminal defense attorneys as you want at your leisure until you find one you're really comfortable with. Yeah, good advice. Awesome. Uh, gives folks a lot to think about, I think. And, uh, you know, I think what I, what I what I take away from that for me personally is that I'm going to – and to some extent I've already done this, but uh, I'm going to do the research ahead of time. And not like I'm planning or expecting to need an attorney, but it's not – in my opinion, that hard to do a little bit of research, you know, see what attorneys are out there that are good attorneys, get some recommendations from folks and go, okay, if I get in trouble, I'm going to call this guy, or I might have three names, you know, of, of reputable, solid attorneys ahead of time that I can go, I'm going to call him, or I'm going to call him, or I'm going to call her. Um, and, and at least I've got that kind of, you know, I've got that, that knowledge ahead of time, uh, as to who I can call. Uh, so I'm not just fumbling, uh, you know, through the uh, phone book. <laughs> now, there, there is no magical attorney. Right. Okay. There is no one attorney who's going to be able to do things for you that another competent criminal defense attorney can't do. As long as your attorney's competent and reasonably experienced, he'll probably do a good job for you. Far more important than that particular person is the facts you give him the material you give him to work with, because that can't be changed. So as long as you've made the effort to learn what the rules are, you kept your conduct within the rules, you've given your attorney, whoever they may be, a vastly easier job than if you're handing him a defective, an inherently defective narrative of self-defense, because he can't fix that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. You need to be prepared personally. And uh, pick an attorney as long as it's uh, you know not Saul Goodman, right? Oh, I don't know. Saul would probably do a pretty good job, actually. <laughs> Especially if you give him good evidence. He's a good storyteller. <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, Jacob, do you have any other questions? No, this has been helpful. And I would encourage listeners, um, if you have questions that you want us to follow up with Andrew, send those to us. Uh, I, I would foresee that as we gather together a handful more questions, we'll invite Andrew back. He's very gracious. He's, he's very giving of his time. And we're we're happy to have him back. So if if there's things you really want Andrew's take on, submit those to us and we'll we'll build those up and we'll hold on to them until the next time. If you're interested in our book, if you're interested in one of our live classes, uh, we do have an instructor program, which is essentially a, the equivalent of a law school semester-long class on use of force law for people who want that high level of education. And just this week, we're finally, uh, after much demand, launching a DVD version of our live classes. And of course, we have the live classes themselves, and we do those all over the country, all 50 states. We're scheduled right now all the way through June of next year. Right. And we feel so fortunate that uh, you found an opening for us in November. Uh, I was already aware that you were booked way out, and I was so thrilled when you said, hey, guys, I got a weekend in November. So just as a as a reminder, I uh, mentioned it earlier on in the podcast, uh, November 11th and 12th in Lakewood, Colorado, uh, Andrew will be there teaching his level one and level two classes. Uh, go check it out, uh, colorado.concealedcarry.com. You'll see it on our class list there. Click on that link. It'll take you to to his site to get signed up for that class. 
Yeah, and I would I would just reiterate the importance of taking you know one of these classes all around the country, almost in every state. You know, wherever you might be, you're going to find one of these events available. And Andrew, just quickly to clarify for us, you know, level one versus level two class, and and how people approach that. Sure. So the level one is uh, our full day. Uh, of instruction on the law of self-defense where we cover these five elements of what makes up a self-defense claim. And when, when I say we cover them, we, we describe the element, uh, we describe how typically, people typically get in trouble on the element, how they lose that element and therefore lose self-defense. And we illustrate that element in that particular state's statutes, court decisions, and jury instructions. So people know that this is the law, not just because Andrew Branca is saying so, but because they see the law from their state, so they know it's real. Um, we also talk about defense of other type, mass shooting type, mass shooting types of events. We talk about defense of property. Uh, we talk for we have an hour long segment where we talk about dealing with the police and the use of force the use of force event. Obviously, in a lot more detail than we were able to do uh, here in this podcast. Um, we talk a lot about building a legally sound self-defense strategies, using those legal principles we've learned to choose self-defense strategies that put you in the best position to win not just the physical fight, but if you use those strategies to also be well positioned to win the legal fight that's likely to follow. And we provide a lot of context about how the criminal justice system ha- actually works, how decisions are made by prosecutors, decisions are made by judges and by juries. Uh, so people can put into context all this information because our goal is not for this to be a legal theory class. Our goal is to make this information actionable for people so they can make better informed, more confident decisions when they're actually acting in defense of themselves or defense of their family. Now, in that level one, I said we illustrate all these legal principles with law from that actual state. Uh, Often we'll use a court decision. Uh, Court decisions are very important because it's in the courts where the law is actually defined. Um, A lot of people, they take a CCW class and the instructor will read them the statutes from their state. And that's awesome. That's that's an essential step, but it's not an adequate step to understand the law because statutes are best thought of as the legislature's intent, what they would like to see happen. Uh, But statutes don't have any effect in the real world by themselves. They don't have any effect until they're interpreted and applied by judges to real people in real cases. And it's not unusual for courts to interpret and apply statutes in ways that seem uh, at variance with the plain English reading of that statute. And what we tell people is if you've read the statute, but you haven't read the court decision that applies that statute, you don't really know what that statute means. Because it doesn't mean what the legislature hoped it might mean. It means what the courts say it means. And that's what we cover in our level two class. In our level two class, we take 10 to 15 of the most important self-defense appellate decisions from that particular state, and we break them down in great detail. Uh, So who were the parties involved? What were the facts of the fight? What happened at trial? What was the verdict? Uh, What is the basis for appeal? Uh, What is the appellate court's analysis? And what conclusion do the appellate courts come through? And this is exactly the way that lawyers learn what the law actually is for when they're practicing with their clients. Uh, so that's what we do in our level two classes. It's, it's a, I have to say it's a much more technical class. So typically about half the people who go to a level one go to a level two. It's not for everybody. Um, but for people who want to be able to understand the law at the same level as a criminal defense attorney would understand it, that's what the level two course is designed to do. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Thank you for that summary. Yeah. So I, I would just you know, really, really strongly urge all listeners 
of this podcast to go go to the website, lawofselfdefense.com slash events. You can see all the upcoming classes all across the country. Uh, find the next one because these things do book up. And I'll add just a little hint here uh, that, that Andrew didn't mention. That is, you might just save a little bit of money by booking in advance. So get on it and go find a class near you. So I, I just mentioned the uh, course on the, the two courses, the level one, level two courses coming up on November 11th and 12th here in Lakewood, Colorado. If you're able to to be here for that or to travel in for it, definitely encourage you to check that out. But also just a reminder that today's sponsor of this episode, and I might add that he's going to be a sponsor going forward for a lot of our episodes of the Concealed Carry podcast, uh, is Andrew Branca's The Law of Self-Defense. Whether it's the DVDs, his online training, in-person courses like I just mentioned, or even the book, please go check all those resources out. You're not going to want to miss out on all of the great education uh, that Andrew has made available. So go check it out at concealedcarry.com forward slash L-O-S-D. Definitely would encourage you to take advantage of those resources. They're out there. Andrew has spent a lot of time putting it all together. And uh, it is by by far and bar none the best legal self-defense training out there, without a doubt. And Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Concealed Carry Podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. And I guess it has one last plug. Folks, you might go check out uh, Andrew. You publish uh, uh, periodically uh, episodes of your own of a podcast, the Law of Self-Defense uh, podcast, right? I do. Uh, it's it's sometimes occasional. I'm not as rigorous about it as a good podcaster ought to be. Uh, I don't really know how to direct people to it, unfortunately, but if you search Law of Self-Defense on iTunes or Stitcher or any of those uh, ubiquitous podcast carriers, uh, you can find it. And we often also put it up as kind of a visual podcast. Uh, podcast on our YouTube channel, which again, you can find just by going to YouTube and searching for Law of Self-Defense. Great. Well, there you have it. Uh, once again, thank you. And thank you, Jacob. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, we'll we'll hopefully talk to you again soon in the future, Andrew. Take care. Sounds good, guys. Bye-bye. Great. I hope folks enjoyed listening to this interview that we had together with Andrew Branca. Uh, really great stuff. Uh, I, I'm just I think I'm going to, have to go back and re-listen to this episode again. This is one of those I'm just going to have to do that because there was so much information packed into this one episode today mm-hmm. that uh, it's going to take a couple of times, I think, listening to really digest it all. And I think you're probably in the same boat, Jacob. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of these things that you hear it and it makes sense, but did you really internalize it? I mean, did it really become part of your deep down understanding of what we're doing? Yeah, Absolutely. So, uh, another great episode today on the Concealed Carry Podcast, and as is typical of our Wednesday episodes, uh, and you know we, we just had Andrew on for the interview, we had to let him go, uh, but as is typical, we always have a pick of the week, and so Jacob and myself, we've got our picks, and... Yours is a cop-out. Uh, yeah, I was going to say it is a cop-out, but you know what? I've been saving this pick for some time. Uh, it was actually, I think, a pick of Mike Seeklander uh, last week, and I was like, dude, like that was totally going to be my pick. One of the, you know, the, I was saving it really for this episode today, and that is the law of self-defense, the book. Uh, we've mentioned it; it's in the sponsor message. Obviously, Andrew talked about it, but you just got to go get it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you got a Kindle, ten bucks. I mean, that's a no-brainer. And yeah. even at twenty-four ninety-nine, you know, the hard copy book. It's just hard to beat for the information, the wealth of knowledge that's packed into into those pages. So just go get the book. I think that's a great place to start and a great introduction. And then you'll definitely want to take advantage of his live in-person courses, his online training, or his DVDs. Yep. Love it. 
Got the book right here. Yeah. And uh, Jacob, what's your pick this week? The Viking Tactics Light Mount. So, or the VTAC like Light Mount, as some people would say. So, um, I recently did a, a video. I think we published it on YouTube and everything, kind of talking about where to position your light, where to mount your light on your uh, on your rifle, on your defense your defensive rifle, your carbine. And in that video, I kind of sh- showing people the the mount that I use, and I use the VTAC Light Mount because a it's got all the good versatility in terms of where to mount your light on your rifle, but more importantly, it has this really cool shim that allows you to use the same mount with either a smaller or larger you know, diameter bore of a flashlight. And it has this really clever kind of groove um, that allows that I can mount a light that has a clip on it without removing the clip, which is a, which is a nice feature. So it's, it's, it's very economic, very affordable. It comes in several colors. They're available for sale on our site, the Viking Tactics light mount. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll also, I guess, just kind of you know, spoil it for anyone who, who didn't know or is, is about to find out. But we also included the Viking Tactics light mount in the quarterly gearboxes that we're shipping out this month. That's awesome. So Guardian Nation members, if you're listening, you you know one of those light mounts is coming your way. So uh, good for you. You're, you guys are going to enjoy that. It's a, a great little light mount. Um, coming up next, by the way, uh, for myself and actually for Jacob as well, but Jacob, he's going to th- uh, mentioned something else as well. Uh, but we've got this Friday, and really, by the time you're listening to this episode of the podcast, this is probably your last chance. If you're in the area, or if, you, if you're able to be in the area, that is in the Denver, Colorado area, uh, where Jacob and I uh, reside and, and operate from, and typically teach a lot of our classes from, who knows, maybe someday we'll do a little more traveling uh, teaching, I don't know. But uh, if you're in the Denver, Colorado area, this Friday, what is it, August, August 18th, We've got uh, another one of our Guardian Essentials pistol course. I mean, think of it as a defensive handgun one, level one. Uh, a great course. Uh, the students we had in our past uh, course uh, really enjoyed it. Really great feedback from them. We're, uh, you know, really wanting to perfect this curriculum. And I think we're going to get there and uh, probably roll this out on a much grander scale. So really excited to have another Guardian Essentials pistol course. You're not going to want to miss it if you're in the area. If you're able to have, if you got Friday off or if you're able to take it off, uh, come down, take the class. Uh, ammo is provided if you're shooting 9mm. That's in the course tuition. If you want to bring your own ammo or if you're shooting a different caliber, uh, we'll knock off the price of the ammo from the course. Uh, but uh don't miss out. You can you can sign up at Colorado.concealedcarry.com. The, the, the uh, Denver Guardian Essentials Pistol Course. So hope to see you there. Uh, we we got you know just a couple more spots left. The other people that are going to be there or that are signed up already, uh, we're looking forward to seeing them here in just a couple of days. Sweet. So Jacob, uh, up next for you. You kind of hinted at it already. So well, today's the day that we are shipping all of our. Guardian Nation quarterly gear boxes. We ship a box every February 15th, every May 15th, every August 15th, and every November 15th. So today is August 15th. So today those boxes are getting packed up and they'll start to go out the door this afternoon. A lot of them probably will go out the door tomorrow morning as well. Awesome. That's exciting. Yeah. So for those of you who are qualifying members of Guardian Nation, you got another box of gear coming your way. And this this quarter, it is valued at $155. Plus, there's some extra bonuses in there uh, that are above and beyond that value. Nice. I'm looking forward to getting my box. 
So who said you get one? <laughs> I I know I get one. I, I, I saw the uh, the order. You know, <laughs> if you are a Guardian Nation, a qualifying Guardian Nation member, meaning you're either an annual paying member, a quarterly paying member, maybe m- meaning you paid uh, prepaid for the quarter. Um, for, the, for the, this entire past quarter, uh, or you were signed up as a monthly member throughout this whole last quarter. So what is that? Uh, May, June, May, July. June, July. Yeah. Um, if you haven't gotten an email uh, saying that a box is ordered for you, uh, then you may want to consider contacting our customer service team at support at concealedcarry.com. So, but I think we got everybody in there that should be in there. No, we certainly think so. So anyway, there you have it. Uh, so uh, Holly wants to say goodbye, apparently, uh, Jacob's dog, uh, uh, to another episode of the Concealed Carry Podcast. Uh, Jacob and Riley here signing off from the Concealed Carry Podcast. A reminder to train right, train often, train safe, so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everybody. We will see you next week. Reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.